huevos, cojones, bollocks, balls, nuts, family jewels, rocks, testes, testicles, scrotum, nads, nards, gonads, sack, junk, the boys, coin purse, swamp nuts, naughty pits, spunk bunkers, yam bag, plum, crown jewels, giggleberry, beans as in frank and, grapes, gear, kiwi, brass clinkers, nuggets, cherry, knapsack, berries as in twig and, wedding tackle, scallops, the twins, wharves, sperm banks, naughty bits, Jehovah's Witnesses, they come in a pair, they keep on knocking, but you never let them in. And my personal favorite, the fruit basket, which I always heard as a term to describe when you tuck your penis in and make it look like you have a third ball. Hey bro, you've been such a good friend. I'd just like to give you this fruit basket as a token of my appreciation. Let's face it, balls are weird. Throughout the years we've been together, Natalia has, not infrequently, queried me on what it's like to have testicles. I've never really been able to come up with an adequate answer. Of course, I can describe the sensation of what it's like to have a piece of your anatomy hanging off your body. And I can talk about how it's uncomfortable when it's hot and sweaty. You do the old pinch and roll when you get an itch. But really, it's hard to get it exactly what she's driving at. And I realize that she's searching for some kind of an explanation that I seem incapable of providing. No matter how detailed of a response I get, or how hard I try to answer the question, she never seems completely satisfied. It comes up again every few months, and I think it's entirely reasonable that she's curious. I just don't know how to give her what she's looking for. I can describe the pain that they've brought me over the years, and recall the first time I was a young boy the roller skating rink. went to exit the roller skating rink and I was moving at a pretty quick rate of speed and I couldn't quite turn to get out of the rink in time and I hit the corner of the exit right on my nuts. And they were black and blue for about a week. Needless to say, having one of the most sensitive parts of your body beaten and bruised is not a pleasant sensation. Since then, I've racked my nuts a handful of times. A couple of times, I've fallen onto the center bar of a bicycle. Oof. That's awful, let me tell you. I think just about the worst was when I was younger, I had a propensity for going without underwear. Well, one day, I zipped up a little bit too fast. And yeah, you guessed it. I zipped up my nuts. And that wasn't the worst part. The worst part was having them zipped and knowing that I had to rip the zipper back off. Oh my gosh, just thinking about it. Can't even describe. Awful. Absolutely awful. When it's cold, they shrink in, contract, 
trying to get closer to your body for warmth. It's not a very pleasant experience. But when it's hot, they hang low. And you walk around with a little extra swagger in your step. It feels pretty darn good. Going through this list of terms that I found from various sources I aggregated online, I realized there were a lot of terms that I'd never heard. I think my favorite being spunk bunker. In Britain, spunk is a word for semen. I guess the bunker is where you store the semen. It's pretty similar to sperm bank, which I hadn't heard either. I kind of like that one. This is the kind of high-quality content you can expect from the Dummies podcast. It's a good idea to record it 2.14 in the morning. Ah, but the fruit basket really does bring back memories. There's a lot of penis tricks, as we used to call them. One of my favorites being the watch. So with the watch, you take your penis and you wrap it around your wrist. And you go up to somebody and you say, hey, have you seen my new watch? And they look down and it's your penis. My other favorite was the flying squirrel, where you grab your balls and you shake up and down. So your penis is the flying squirrel flying through the bush. Really, the only thing that I can say that I haven't said so far is an answer to Natalia's query. I often come back with the response, what's it like to not have balls? It seems like that's about the best I can do. But honestly, I think her question touches on something deeper. She might as well ask, what's it like to exist? What's it like to be a human? It's really hard to answer a question like that. Sure, you could do your best to describe the range of emotions and sensations that inhabit our life in these human bodies on this mortal coil. But I don't think you can really answer that question in a way that gives any kind of meaningful insight. Sometimes I just talk about what it's like to be gutsy. I know that's not the answer she's looking for either, but I feel like it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek, silly response. It's all that I can do to not get annoyed at her frequent requests for information. I feel as if I've exhausted just about every avenue that I can think of and trying to answer her question, and I don't want to avoid giving her a response. But it is a little awkward and uncomfortable every time she asks. So as my last recourse in an attempt to satiate her curiosity, I pose the question to our illustrious listening audience. What is it like to have balls? So there was a caulking gun laying about at my work tonight, and I couldn't help but break into the old caulking jokes. My personal favorite being, I'm an expert with the cock. Gotta be careful. Take your time. It's nothing worse than a sloppy cock. I might have been the full moon, but I was live with it after that. I started talking about how my coworker probably seen a lot of cock in his day. He's an expert when it comes to cock. And then I was talking about how you gotta make good use of your cock. 
When it gets old, it dries up and it's no good for anything anymore. I saw a meme online recently where this lady said that she never tried so hard in her entire life to make sure she was pronouncing a silent L as when she had to ask at Home Depot where she could find some cock. I've been seeing this punk rock band that did a cover of The Clash. They did a version of London Calling and switched it up with Kiev Calling. Okay, it's kind of cool, whatever. But tonight I saw posted online that the guys from this band were wearing shirts that were modeled after the Ramones. And instead of saying the word Ramones above the logo... It said Bandera, the fascist leader of Ukraine during the Nazi occupation. This is a guy who massacred thousands of Jewish and Polish people in service of the Nazis. Yikes. I don't think Joe Strummer would approve. So that was a little depressing, considering this is supposed to be some kind of a feel-good story coming out of this whole fiasco. I was listening to a podcast where they were talking about how a lot of these former Soviet bloc countries, after gaining their independence, were kind of searching for national heroes. And the only people they could find from the modern era who weren't communists were people who had collaborated with the Nazis. And it often ends up being some guy named Vladimir the Jew Killer kind of helped explain to me a little bit about the mentality and the origins of these fascist groups that have been attacking the separatist regions in Ukraine. We also talked a little bit about Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, and I didn't realize that he was one of the main figures in the recently leaked Panama Papers. These files reveal that he's co-owner, or at least in the past had been co-owner, of a sprawling network of offshore companies, at least according to The Guardian. These were co-owned with his longtime friends and TV business partners, including the guy that wrote the scripts for his television program. Not to excuse Vladimir Putin, who is also an oligarch. These guys are both bastards. But you're not hearing a lot about the awful things that Zelensky's done. It's kind of interesting He was an actor before he became the president, where he played the role of the president of Ukraine. And I thought, wow, man, this kind of goes a long way in explaining why he's so compelling when he speaks. What I didn't know at first was that he owns the media company that aired the television program, and his media company decided to enlist him as the main character in the show. He was not an actor before this. He was apparently heavily involved in the coup that took out the elected president of Ukraine. For a little bit of perspective on all of this, the U.S.-backed coup is what led to the two separatist regions of Ukraine breaking away and wanting to form their own republics. They weren't too keen on the idea that democracy had been subverted in their country, and they decided to go it on their own. 
leading to the last eight years or so of war between Ukrainian nationalists and the people in these republics. I don't mean to imply that Putin backing these republics and going to war with Ukraine is somehow legitimized by this, but I just thought there's a lot more to this story than people are being told. Somehow we're getting real one-sided information round the clock on the television. Of course, Putin is implicated in the Panama Papers as well, although not directly, but the mother of his child is listed as having offshore accounts. It sounds like both of them are dipping their feet into tax evasion and finding ways to store money illicitly. It seems that nobody comes across as squeaky clean when you start to dig a little bit deeper. As far as the West is concerned, I have this cynical theory that the arms manufacturers in the United States were actually disappointed when the Soviet Union fell and that that was their reason for being. And even NATO really found it hard to legitimize itself after the Cold War ended. Raytheon and Lockheed Martin are certainly seeing their stock prices soar. Lovely Natalia did me the favor of looking up our location on the Nuke map. This is a website that shows how you'd fare based off a radius of a nuclear blast. You can pinpoint the nuclear blast anywhere you'd like. Based off of downtown Los Angeles, we would survive if a Hiroshima-sized bomb were to be dropped on Los Angeles. Unfortunately, nuclear bombs have gotten much more powerful since the one that was dropped on Japan. The one that was dropped on Hiroshima, known as Little Boy, had a blast which was equivalent to 15 kilotons of TNT. The largest bomb in Russia's nuclear arsenal today is the equivalent of 800 kilotons. Supposedly, if that one was dropped, Inglewood and most of South L.A. would be destroyed. I think down here in Torrance, we'd just be experiencing horrible fallout from the radiation. And in Long Beach, we may even fare a bit better. I guess it's something to be optimistic about. Angeles Times this morning, and in their perspective section, big surprise here, they had an article about Ukraine. This opinion piece was written by Tia Goldenberg, and it's entitled, Putin's War Claim, Just Total Fiction. It talks a little bit about the Ukrainian government and Putin's claims 
that it's run by Nazis as a justification for his war. And there were some valid points in this article, pointing out that Zelensky is Jewish and had relatives who were killed in the Holocaust. But there was one line that stuck out to me. It seemed really incongruous with reality. It was talking about how World War II was really important to the Russian national identity. And I quote, Some historians say this has been coupled with an attempt by Russia to retool certain historical truths. They say Russia has tried to magnify the Soviet role in defeating the Nazis. Russians killed 76% of the Germans who were killed in World War II. Soviet losses dwarf those of any other country. With over 11 million military deaths and more than 10 million civilian deaths. Not including famine and other things that were caused by the war. The U.S. had 419,000 less than half the amount of United States citizens who have been killed by COVID-19. While these numbers are only estimates, the best guess is that the U.S. killed around 550,000 German soldiers, with other Western allies responsible for another 500,000. That leaves the Soviet Union responsible for over 2 million, far more than any other country. Weaponry and technology from the West did play a role in helping the Russians defeat the Nazis, but these figures make it seem like it would be difficult to magnify the Russian role in a way that was historically inaccurate. The fact is, the Russians killed a whole lot of Nazis, and it seems pretty irresponsible to try to deny them the credit, even if you don't like the policies of their government in present day. When an opinion piece in the Times is spreading information that's so verifiably wrong, you can't help but wonder if the other claims that are being made are somewhat questionable as well. With so many disparate, competing claims out there in the media right now, credibility seems to be huge. It's impossible to go and verify these things that we're hearing in different media for ourselves. So the people presenting it to us need to be looked at with great scrutiny. Looking for people who have an established record of honesty is about the only way we can try to verify any of the information that we're getting. I looked up Tia Goldenberg, and she's a correspondent for the Associated Press. Regrettably, it would be difficult to take anything that she reported at face value based off this opinion piece that was published this morning. Well, after those earlier segments, it may shock you guys to know that I actually have friends. Sitting across from me is the lovely Natalia. Good morning, Natalia. Good morning. And I would just like to clarify, just because he conned me into marrying him does not make me a friend. Ooh, ouch. (laughs) 
Well, in brighter news, Bloomberg's posted an article up telling us all how we can deal with the recession. Er, inflation. I don't know if it's considered a recession yet. The bright side is, you don't need to worry if you make more than $300,000 a year. Yeah, gas is only 1% of your income already, so you'll be just fine. Just a drop in the pail. Yeah, drop in the bucket. But, um, yeah, you know, food is only 4% of your income, so you'll be set. Unfortunately for the rest of us, it's a little bleak. But Bloomberg has some helpful tips on how you can deal with it. They published this article on Twitter, and it's getting some, some great feedback, especially on the leftist Twitter. The main points that they've posted in relation to this article is to uh, to deal with inflation, which stings more than if you make more if you make uh, less than three hundred k. Is you can take the bus, don't buy in bulk, try lentils instead of meat, and nobody said this would be fun. Yeah, I know. I think the best part about it is their comments are just gold. See uh, a whole lot of. Eat the rich as a nice meat substitute. Uh, my personal favorite is uh, barbecue the bourgeoisie. That one's nice. I may just go back to eating meat. Oh, yeah. I may make an exception for a while. It's for oh. a good cause. Now, this article is interesting. <laughs> it gives these kind of bullshit hints and tips on what you can do to survive. Oh, and the other one that I really liked is it said, you know, if you got a pandemic pet, you can cut back on medical care for your pet. Surprised they didn't advise you to eat your pet. It's pretty fucking bleak. There's a lot of uh, blowback. Kind of does my heart good. And it amazed me of all these bullshit tips that they give you. They didn't mention anything about organizing your workplace or, you know, seizing the means of production. Well, I mean, why would they do something yeah. like that when you could just go back to eating lentils and beans like the peasant you are? Uh, this is true. Well, it's fortunate that Bloomberg po- published these tips. I, I think we're all just going to be just fine. How much does Bloomberg make a year? One can only imagine. <laughs> or yeah. look it up on Google. Yeah, I guess so. The other fun response was to cancel your subscription to Bloomberg. <laughs> Although I can't imagine that very many people making under 50K a year are subscribing to Bloomberg. I have two subscriptions, personally. Oh, oh look at you. I wipe my ass with them. (laughs) I'm serious, folks. I took five hits off California weed and I can barely get up. So I was talking to my brother on the phone yesterday. He was telling me a story about my little nephew. And he's uh, about a year and a half old, and he's talking and walking and terrorizing my brother. He is learning new words every day. So they're on this walk in the park, and they're going along the path, and they meet up with this guy and they come in the other direction that tells them that he saw a raccoon on the path up ahead. So, of course, my nephew decides that raccoon That's a fun new word. So he keeps repeating raccoon, 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 raccoon. And they're walking along, raccoon, raccoon, raccoon. It's all he's thinking about, all he's talking about. And then they come around the corner and there's the raccoon sitting right in the middle of the path. And he sees it 
and he exclaims, Kitty! ago, I first read Noam Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent. This book talks about how the media manipulates public opinion into generating consent for government actions and just horrible atrocities. And somewhat places the blame on people for buying into it, voting for these people were somehow complicit. And through the years, there's been quite a few things that Chomsky's come out with that I kind of question. Where's he coming from with that opinion? I remember saying something along those lines to Armand, former host of the Big Dumb Dummies podcast with me. And Armand said something to me that kind of shocked me, kind of upset me a bit at the time. I didn't really want to admit that he was right. He told me that anybody that you know about, anybody you're hearing about, the media is pushing is going to be a shill. They're going to be controlled opposition. If you read Chomsky, he's pretty radical. It struck me as a little incongruous. How could this guy be controlled opposition? And I kind of feel the same way when I read Zizek. He's very much got these communist ideals, far left ideals. He never really gives a solution. He always kind of beats around the bush with it. You guys need to decide for yourselves. There is somebody else who I've sort of stumbled upon in the last few years. In fact, I realized that I was exposed to him when I was much younger. There's a band called Choking Victim. In fact, that's kind of indirectly where this podcast got its name. The choking victim broke up shortly after recording their first CD, and they reformed, some of the members reformed into a group called Leftover Crack, and hence we have the Leftover Dummies. So anyway, on this choking victim record, there were some quotes from Sounds Like an Intellectual. It was a little bit strange to hear this very staid person talking about the banking system and for instance, how the police are only there to prop up the banking system and protect it. That they're not really there to serve the public good. That their true reason for being is to keep the system in place and keep people from rising up. And I didn't realize it at the time, but the speaker was Michael Perenni. Lately, I've been seeing more and more of his memes and things and leftist circles. And watch some of these videos where he gives speeches and it strikes me that he's so unknown, but so eloquent, and he speaks in such a plain manner anybody can understand. So this last week, I decided to check out some of his work. Apparently, he wrote a college-level textbook. It's entitled Democracy for the Few, and I'm just getting started on it, but already it's really incredible, some of the stuff that I'm learning talks about how two, three hundred years ago, 
all these public figures, American founding fathers and others, were very open about the purpose of government, that government is there to protect property. In societies that didn't have a lot of property, sustenance societies, they generally were pretty egalitarian. Decisions were made members of the society, and there wasn't really a need for the structure of government. And a lot of these American founding fathers and others from this time period very much talked about how government was there to protect the rich, protect the haves from the have-nots. They didn't see anything wrong with it. Perenni continues on saying that Marx had the same analysis, but his great sin was disapproving of it. So that's where I'm getting started. And so far, it's really, really interesting to read this guy's work and talk about how I never really came across him till fairly recently. That's for a reason. It's kind of nice to think I finally dug a little bit deeper and found what Armand was talking about all those years ago. Michael Parenti received his master's degree from Brown University and his PhD in political science from Yale University. He went on to become a professor. I'll read a little excerpt from an interview that he gave. In it, he's speaking about the corporate control of the university system. They control what can be taught and what cannot be taught. They can control removing a professor or a faculty member who is too troublesome, who raises too many challenging questions, who takes a too radical position on issues. How many communists are there with tenure in North American universities? I can tell you in the United States, I do not think there are any known openly communist, and many just ordinary progressive and radical professors have been done in. I can tell you firsthand what happens to faculty. I was at the University of Vermont. I was voted for renewal of my contract unanimously by my department, by the Council of Deans, by the President and the Vice President, but the Board of Regents voted me down 15 to 4, and they were made up mostly of corporate people with a few politicians, state legislators also thrown in because it was a public institution. But even the public institutions have the corporate mode of rule. When you get something from Yale University in the mail, I got my PhD from Yale, it comes in and it says the Yale Corporation. Or if it is from Harvard or Princeton, then is the Harvard Corporation the Princeton Corporation. In short, the university is a corporation. It is chartered by the state as a corporation. Though, I mean, you could say maybe he's just sour grapes, but if you read the guy's work, it seems hard to deny that he is on a level with any of these other so-called radicals that are public intellectuals. I highly suggest, if you're on the Facebook, following Perenni Posting, and uh, if you can, get yourself a copy of one of these books and give it a little peruse. Assuming this podcast doesn't just disappear forever, I'll keep you guys posted as I continue down this journey. I think maybe that's all the time we got this time, guys. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you on the next one.
shout outs to Nick and Sarah. It's okay. Much love to Archibald and Natalia. Yo. Big thanks to our mom. Thank you very much. Your constant questioning and haranguing forces me to constantly improve. That it does. Thanks to the Knowledge Fight Podcast mm-hmm. for the out of context Alex Jones drop about smoking that California weed. Much obliged. Gracias a la banda at the Grain Cafe. Merci beaucoup. Respect due to choking victim and Michael Parenti. Oui, oui. You don't have to be choking to be a victim. This episode has been brought to you by Hoopers. Mm-hmm. And the huge ego it takes to think that recording ourselves for public consumption is actually a good idea. Sounds about right. Large up to those with big balls, those without balls, and all those with an unsatiable curiosity. <laughs> Insatiable. Thanks to all of our family, friends, and listeners. We appreciate all the love and support.